This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Professor William Cavanaugh. He teaches at DePaul University and is the author of a number of books, including Being Consumed, which will be the main focus of our discussion today. Hi, Bill. We're so glad to have you joining us. Hi, Malcolm. It's good to be here. For our listeners, could you give us a little background on yourself and how you came to write the book, uh, Being Consumed? Why did you think it was uh, needed? So I was um, raised Catholic uh, in the Chicago area, Um, went to Notre Dame as an undergrad, intended to major in chemical engineering and got hooked on theology. Um, So uh, went uh, off to uh, do a couple of stints as a lay volunteer with the Holy Cross Associates after undergrad, uh, ended up in Colorado and then later in Chile for a couple of years under the military dictatorship, and then came back and got a, a doctorate in theology at Duke uh, University, taught at the University of St. Thomas for 15 years, and have been at DePaul for about 10 years. And this book um, kind of came about accidentally. It um, it was actually the idea of a French publisher. So it was published first in French. Uh, it, was, it was a publisher who just put together a few essays that I had written for other occasions into one book. And then I kind of um, smoothed it out into, uh, into one book uh, by kind of looking at four different themes having to do with um, a kind of consumer economy and, um, and Christianity. I know that you've mentioned in other contexts that your experience in Chile was really uh, formative. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, your experience there? Sure. So I was a lay volunteer um, living and working in a poor neighborhood of Santiago in the last couple of years of the military dictatorship, the Pinochet uh, military dictatorship. And um, it was a time in which the church was really the kind of only space for opposition to the human rights abuses of the military dictatorship. The church was the only space that had a certain amount of uh, independence, which it had had to fight for uh, and guard uh, jealously. And so um, in some senses, the church was at the forefront of the restoration of democracy in Chile and the opposition to human rights uh, abuses. So when I came back from a couple of years there, um, I actually worked at the law school at the University of Notre Dame, uh, developing a database for um, the archives of the Vicariate of Solidarity, which was a project of the Archdiocese of Santiago to um, provide uh, assistance, legal and material assistance to people whose relatives had been disappeared and uh, people have been tortured and so on. And so that then became the genesis of uh, what eventually became my first book, which was my, my PhD dissertation as well, called Torture and Eucharist, which is kind of um, torture as a, a way of um, atomizing the body politic and Eucharist as a way of kind of putting it back together. So torture is the, the, the um, strategy of the military dictatorship and Eucharist is the kind of counter counter strategy counter liturgy of the of the church 
you know, when I've talked to other people who have spent time outside the developed world, and then they come back, especially here to the United States, they've commented on how how strange everything suddenly seems uh, here in the developed world, how uh, bizarre our preoccupations and our ways of life can seem when pitted against the much harsher realities elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there's a, a number of different ways in which that's true. Um, oftentimes you find that um, uh, people who struggle in very kind of unromantic uh, situations of poverty uh, also time also often have a, a deep faith and um, which is not again to romanticize poverty, but it is to, to say that um, sometimes there's a way in which affluence can inure us to um, kind of buffer us from uh, some of the deeper uh, deeper realities of life. I, I currently um, direct a center a research center on the Church in the Global South at DePaul called the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology. And um, we see often just how vibrant uh, the church is in the, the so-called global south. So we were in um, Nigeria in December of 2019, just before the pandemic hit, uh, at the, the largest Catholic seminary in the world, uh, in Enugu, Nigeria, that 855 uh, young uh, Nigerians in formation, and it's one of 20 seminaries in Nigeria. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of places uh, like that, um, different stories and, and, a, and a, a different kind of hope and a certain joyfulness um, that we sometimes overlook uh, under circumstances like those in the United States where secularization seems to be on the, on the, the rise. That's interesting. I've I've sometimes thought that uh, you know when we get so fixated on the decline of the church in the developed world, we can be missing out on a lot. And of course, this uh, website and podcast were was named for uh, the book by Father Thomas Dubay, "Happy Are You Poor?" And I liked how he put it that poverty does not equal you know moral uprightness, but it can be seen as sort of a preparation, a necessary prerequisite in a certain way to understand the gospel. That poverty, he said, it's like um, readiness to read. Uh, A child who's ready to read doesn't know how to read any more than a child who isn't ready, but they can be taught. Um, And he was talking about how poverty of life, not destitution, but a certain level of poverty can prepare one then to see the good news as really good. Whereas as the, the rich young ruler who came to Christ found uh, the, the rich have a harder time seeing it as really good news. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably true. There's a sense in which we all uh, need to uh, cultivate a sense of our own vulnerability. And oftentimes uh, in the global north, we um, have all kinds of mechanisms to uh, try to escape from the fact of our basic human vulnerability. Uh, we we like to pretend that we can rely on a um, retirement account, and that's going to save us um, when we really need uh, need to rely on God. And that's a good transition, I think, to the introduction of your book, where you start out by saying that some Christians are tempted to assume that economics is a discipline autonomous from theology. 
that the way we structure our economics, you know, the gospel's over here, economy's over there. And why do you think that's such a common um, assumption? And what is uh, wrong with that assumption from a Christian standpoint? Yeah, one thing about that assumption is that it's not always been that way, right? Economics, there was no kind of separate uh, field of economics uh, until fairly recently in history. Uh, And it was previously just a branch of moral theology. So um, what you do with your money and and how you make it and how you spend it and so on was just a, a branch of moral theology. And it becomes this kind of autonomous discipline and then gets touted as a science in the course of the 20th century. Uh, becomes an autonomous discipline maybe a century before that, you know, late, late 18th century. Um, uh, and then into the 20th century becomes a sort of science. And it seems that it's designed that way um, in order to uh, keep us from thinking too carefully about the moral ramifications of what we do with our, you know, money and businesses and and that sort of things. So uh, when it's a when it's a branch of the discipline of moral theology, you understand that um, everything you do, the, your your material life, is entirely and you know enveloped in your spiritual life. Uh, and when it becomes an autonomous discipline, you can conveniently uh, forget that, and you can think that it's um, it's a separate realm of life, and that's that allows you to do more things in the realm of uh, business or in the realm of consumer behavior. If you think that it's it's something independent of your spiritual life or your your religious life. And if you think of it as a science, then you think that um, there's no point in, uh, you know, um, uh, reflecting on the, the the moral importance uh, of what you do. That it just economic behavior just is what it is, and um, and thinking about it morally then is some other kind of uh, discipline entirely. So um, I think there are certain sort of ideological purposes for making us think uh, that way. And it's, it's kind of regrettable that um, uh, even Catholics and other Christians have, have played right into that. You know, I, I was staying at um, the home of my godparents a few years ago and found an old Catholic uh, geography textbook from 1952 uh, called World Neighbors, which is a great title. Um, and it has these whole sections on economic behavior. And it treats these things, you know, it talks about how in the Middle Ages, there was a concept of a just price. And um, people, uh, it, it kind of, you know, is shocked that today people think in terms of supply and demand as what ought to set the price and so on. But it's this whole kind of, you know, somewhat romanticized um uh, you know, Catholic view of the economy. And now, of course, you know, when my children went through uh, Catholic grade school, they didn't have a Catholic geography book or a Catholic economics book. They just used the same uh, book to, to learn geography and economics as the public school kids did. And so we've kind of lost this sense that there is a specifically or can be a specifically 
Catholic or a Christian uh, view of how to how to deal uh, with economics. Now we just consider it to be a sort of secular thing, and that it's the same. It's like learning mathematics. There's not you know there's no such thing as Catholic mathematics, um, and I th- I think that's a loss. Yeah, it should be obvious that uh, that moral discipline should cover what you do with your things, and that's what economics is all about: how we live together and how we distribute. Uh, you know, material goods. Um, and I, I really like the quote from uh, St. John Paul II, where he said that if a faith is not embodied as culture, it isn't fully faith. That if there's some area of life that we would wall off from our religion, you know, like my religion only extends this far in its influence, then we're not fully realizing what our faith is telling us. We're not fully admitting it into our lives. But if we have fully understood the claim that Jesus Christ has over us, then everything we do has to be uh, structured by a realization of that claim. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and it's a, a solidly biblical uh, point of view, right? I mean, we oftentimes look at the Old Testament and, you know, our eyes glaze over as we, you know, read the 613 laws, which cover everything you know, from what to do with your bird's nests to what to do if a donkey falls into a pit and so on. And we think, what does this have to do with religion? But the, you know, the, the details might need a little bit of working out, but the but the the general point is hard to miss that that your relationship with God is entirely bound up with your day-to-day, very mundane relationships with other people as mediated through uh, material things. So there's, there's the, the material life is good. You know, all of creation is good, uh, precisely insofar as it, um, it, it, it helps us to communicate with each other and, um, and helps us to communicate with God. We communicate with each other and, and to God with, uh, with material things in a lot of ways. And that, that's what the sacraments are about as well. Yeah, I just uh, got done reading through Leviticus with my uh, Bible study group, and it was amazing how much concern there is about economics, as we would call it, and especially about making sure that the poor don't fall through the cracks. The uh, jubilee years, the redistribution of wealth, the forgiving of debts, the uh, prohibition of usury. Uh, leaving the gleanings of the field for the poor. It's, it's really, uh, really incredible. And then to realize that so often Christians have not even come up to the Old Testament level. When we're called to go beyond the Old Testament in Christ, we're supposed to take the concern that we see in Leviticus for fellow um, members of the people of Israel and expand that to everyone, because now we're all brothers in Christ. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In, uh, in your first chapter, where you start talking about the economic concepts of the free market and government control, I really liked how you framed it by saying we don't have to be uh, for or against the free market as such. We have to consider what makes uh, a market free. So what you, you say that the typical defender of the free market has a very flawed view of freedom from a Christian perspective. So what is that perspective and why is it uh, incompatible with a Christian understanding? Right. Most of the definitions of the free market that you get out there are, um, 
use a, a negative view of freedom, meaning that freedom is freedom from uh, interference. So freedom from the interference of others. So, and, and primarily the state, you know, the government. And so I look at um, Milton Friedman's uh, definition of a free market there, which he largely gets from Adam Smith. Um, but it's a negative uh, view of freedom. So it, as long as uh, any transaction is bilaterally informed and voluntary, you know, one person's not deceiving the other and it's one person's not forcing the other into it, then um, the transaction is free. And I think that's a necessary but not a sufficient condition for true freedom. Uh, and so I look at Augustine and talk about how uh, Augustine and the Catholic tradition more broadly has a, a much fuller idea of freedom, that it's not just negative freedom, but it also includes positive freedom, which means the, uh, the ability, the capacity to do something. So an example I use with my students often is playing the piano. Um, I'm free in the negative sense to play piano if there's nobody stopping me from sitting down at the keyboard and, and pounding away. But if I don't know how to play the piano, then I don't have positive freedom in that sense. Uh, I can't really play the piano because I don't know what I'm doing. I can pound on it, but, but that's about it. So, um, so you have to have uh, both negative and, and positive freedom for something to be truly free. And so for the market, it's not enough to say, well, you know, uh, a company is paying a woman in, you know, usually typically a young woman in Southeast Asia, paying them 40 cents an hour, um, you know, and, and they knew what they were getting uh, and they took the job voluntarily. It's not enough to, to say that's free um, because what it really is, what's really happening there is this tremendous disparity between you know, multinational corporations that can move all over the world uh, in order to take advantage of the most desperate people. And on the other hand, the, the people who are so desperate that they have to take a job for 40 cents an hour just to, to try to survive. You know, the disparity of power needs to be looked at there. And you need to realize that this is not something that is leading to the freedom and flourishing of all the parties involved but it's really just a matter of taking advantage of someone else's desperation. So that's not a, a free market. Yeah, I, I really, really liked how you brought up that aspect of having to look at disparities of power because otherwise you're right. It's, it just makes nonsense out of the whole concept of freedom. Uh, if someone is going to starve if they don't take a terrible job because that's the only one around, then they weren't really free. It's not what they would have preferred to do if given a wider range of opportunity. It's what they were, you know, literally forced into, even if there's no one standing around with a gun. And I know you also mentioned that uh, all too often in many countries, uh, the free market is propped up by the direct threat of violence of the government, uh, which backs the power of the multinational company and destroys alternatives that might grow up to it. Right. That's, that's right. So it's, it's really when, when people talk about the free market, what they often really mean is a market in which corporations are free. Um, and so uh, corporations are free to move across uh, national boundaries 
but uh, people are not, right? And so um, migrants uh, are, if they manage to make it across the border, they li live under conditions of illegality and, um, and can be exploited uh, precisely because of that. And so oftentimes um, governments do in fact intervene uh, in the name of the free market, and they intervene on behalf of um, of companies. And so, you know, that was the case in uh, Chile, right? The uh, the military regime took over in a bloody coup in 1973, and then uh, General Pinochet brought Milton Friedman and his team down. They were called Los, Los Chicago Boys. Um, brought them down uh, to create what's called a free market under conditions of uh, military dictatorship. And uh, Friedman made the unfortunate comment in Santiago that the economy needed shock treatment, which is exactly what all the people who were being tortured with electricity were getting. Um, and so um, Eduardo Galeano says of this period in Latin American history, people were in prison so that prices could be free. And I think that's exactly uh, what was going on. So oftentimes you get, um, you know, people rail against government interference in the market um, and yet cozy up to dictatorships uh, and so on that, that want to set the conditions in favor of, of corporations and, and against people. I was really struck by that uh, quote about uh, people being in prison so that prices could be free. And it reminded me of a, another quote I heard. I can't remember the author now, but it's that we already do have socialism here in the United States. We have a socialism for corporations. Right. Uh, yeah. They get propped up by our social welfare for corporations. They can uh, privatize their profits and socialize all the costs. Mm -hmm. um, and in, uh, in in the first chapter, you also quote, Thomas Aquinas as saying that property ownership is only valid if we use it for the benefit of others. Um, and that's interesting that uh, Aquinas certainly does recognize private property and the tradition of the church recognizes property, but holds that it um, can't con conflict with the idea of the universal destination of human goods. Can you explain how the church reconciles those two uh, aspects of economic life? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the recognition of private property is um, is a concession to human sin, right? I mean, it's it, it's analogous to the just war tradition in in many ways. What you find um, in, I mean, it's 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 hard to find uh, defenses of private property in the Bible um, as as such. I mean, uh, you find the the um, the ideal being presented in the book of Acts in chapter two and four is that people had every, all their possessions in common um, and, you know, gave to each according to their need and so on. Um, so uh, the church has kind of recognized um, the importance of private property kind of grudgingly and always put what, um, you know, the recent popes have called uh, um, a social mortgage on property. I, th I think that term originates with John Paul II, but it might it might predate him. I'm not sure. Um, but they talk about a social mortgage on property. So it's never just yours, um, but it also it always has to be used for um, the common good. And this is what you find Aquinas saying. Um, it actually appears 
in the part of the Summa on uh, theft, um, because he basically says, look, everything belongs to God, right? And he cites Psalm 24, right? The earth is mine and everything in it. Um, and we're just using uh, this stuff. And so we need to use it not for our own benefit, but for um, the, the common good. And it's only, uh, it, it can only be legitimate if it's used um, for the, the common good. He gives a few arguments why private property is oftentimes a useful thing. Um, and when I talk about this with my students, I think um, one, one of the arguments he gives is that um, people will take care of things better if, if it's theirs. And so I, you know, have my students think about what the refrigerator in their uh, shared apartment uh, looks like if nobody is in charge <laughs> of cleaning the refrigerator, right? By the end of the school year, it looks pretty grim. Um, and, and so he makes a few uh, arguments like that. But the baseline is that this is all God's stuff. The world is God's. And, um, and it's meant to be uh, enjoyed for the benefit of all. And so, uh, and this I think is the basic uh, impulse behind the, the idea of Jubilee uh, in the Old Testament as well, right? The idea that this is not your uh, property, it, it's all ultimately uh, God's property and the property of God's people. Uh, and it needs to, and that's why, um, uh, you know, the, the Jubilee idea is that you, you can't just keep accumulating more and more property or more and more wealth. It needs to kind of go back uh, to a, uh, its original kind of distribution um, after a certain uh, period of time and debts need to be uh, forgiven and so on. Um, this is all part of this idea that it, property is for uh, the use of, uh, of everyone in common. And I think, too, you know, that's already found, as you said, in the Old Testament, that's really reinforced in Christ because we're all part of the mystical body. And, you know, as members of the body, it would be crazy if we didn't share our goods with one another. You know, if if, uh, some part of the body doesn't have what it needs, the other parts of the body are going to be determined to get for that part what it does need. Um, So, again, we're called up, you know, like the original impulse there in in the Old Testament that the earth is the Lord's, and then it's called up to another higher level. So 1 Corinthians 12, right? In the body of Christ, when one rejoices, all rejoice together. And when one suffers, all suffer uh, together uh, in the body. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you combine that with Matthew 25, where Christ is identified with those who uh, suffer. Um, the, the I, you know, when did we see you thirsty and hungry and in prison and so on. Uh, and Jesus says, whenever you did that to the least of my brothers and sisters, you did that uh, to me. So Jesus doesn't identify himself with the good people who, who you know, do good works. He identifies himself with those who are uh, suffering. So um, that, that I think has a, a profound implication on all of these uh, questions of economics. In chapter two, you talked about um, a commodity. And in, in chapter two, I know you, you talk about how none of us are the kind of people who would kill someone for a cheaper shirt. You know, if, if you stood up in front of a room of Christians, they'd all deny that they would do such a thing, but that we all are the kind of people who do that thing right now, that we're all 
profiting on the destruction of people's lives to make our cheap shirts and other goods. And that uh, idea, um, it, it really, when I, when I read that passage in your book, it really uh, changed my perspective on things. I really realized how important it was to be aware and to, as far as possible, not profit from this. And you tie this back to the idea of commodification. And you told a story about a man who rented out advertising space on his forehead. He said, well, my forehead's mine. And so therefore I can rent it out to advertise something. Um, what is, you know, like, what is the problem from a Christian perspective with this commodification of goods and of human labor? Yeah. So a commodity, uh, as I understand it, is something that can be uh, bought and sold. And um, it, to, to maybe I'll, I'll put this in Karl Marx's terms, because I think in some ways he's kind of um, talking out of a kind of resilient, a, a residual um, Christianity here, um, or a biblical point of view. But he talks about the, um, the way that objects have a use value um, and then objects have an exchange value. And um, so where, where what their value is is not what they can be used for, but what they can be exchanged for. And the problem, he thinks, is that in the industrial economy, the exchange value has swamped the use value. And so we don't think in terms of, uh, you know, what do people need? To have a dignified life, we don't think of use; we think of exchange. How can I get more uh, more money? And it doesn't matter if I'm making things that are useful or or not. Um, that all all that really matters is what something can be uh, exchanged for, and it produces this very uh, uh, active and dynamic economy where all sorts of things get produced. But at the same time, the, the things themselves come to, to kind of dominate. And so um, what happens is that we, we end up losing sight of production, how things are actually produced, and we begin to focus on just uh, the things themselves. I think this is part of what's meant by commodification, is that the things take on life and advertising then develops in which, you know, these things kind of dance and sing and all we see are the products and we forget about the whole production process that links human labor to, um, to commodities. And, and our whole economy now is designed to make us forget about uh, the, the conditions under which things are made and just to think about the products themselves. So, and that's especially now with online shopping too, is that you don't ever have to encounter a human being. You can just go on your computer and there are all these images of these shining, beautiful products and you can lose yourself among these images. You click on it and then the product appears on your doorstep a day or two later, you know, in a package with a smile on it, as if it were a living, a living being. And what you don't see ever then are the people that are working in sweatshops 
making these products in Malaysia or you know China or whatever, Honduras. Um, you don't even see the the people that deliver the items. You don't see the people working in an Amazon warehouse uh, for an average of twenty eight thousand dollars a year, while Jeff Bezos is making um, in the year twenty twenty his net worth uh, increased uh, by um, a rate of, I think it's $183 million a day. Um, and, and you just, this whole process of uh, production and everything just gets erased and all you see are the, the products. So that I think is part of what's uh, meant by commodification, the way the whole system is designed to precisely make us forget about where things come from, who makes them, who has to labor by their sweat and their blood and their tears uh, in order to make them just magically appear on our doorsteps. You know that uh, the, the fact that everything is so disembedded, uh, G.K. Chesterton talks about the danger that falls upon a society where no one sees the beginning and end of a thing. We all see some little slice of the full circle of a product or a process or a a life. Uh, and, and to me, this inherent craziness of our economy was really highlighted at the beginning of the pandemic by two different things. One was that, of course, all non-essential work was shut down. And suddenly it was obvious that if non-essential work stayed shut down, if, if no one was making useless things anymore, everyone would starve. <laughs> our economy, like, and imagine explaining this to, you know, some peasant villager somewhere. It's like, well, there were people were still making the same amount of food that they were had before and the same amount of clothing and housing like all the essential things were being done but because they couldn't make useless gadgets they all starved and just kind of the the preposterous nature of what we've built for ourselves was really driven home and then the other thing was um you know this idea of looking at a thing and asking can i sell it instead of you know is it useful um, and that happens to useful things, too, in our economy. So they were interviewing farmers in California and Arizona who were plowing under crops, uh, crops that had been um, grown for the restaurant trade. And, of course, everyone's eating the same amount. The eating is just you know transferred to homes instead of restaurants. But because they were designed to produce product for restaurants, they couldn't get the food to all the people who were suddenly hungry because they'd lost their jobs. Uh, they were talking about how how this is really tragic, but they just were that there were these uh, images of endless fields of lettuce stretching to the horizon being plowed under. And so there's this there's this mismatch between what the actual purpose of a thing is, in this case to eat the the lettuce, whereas the farmers were treating the lettuces merely as things to sell, and therefore when they couldn't sell them as they'd intended to, they were they suddenly became useless right yeah no that's a an excellent example of um of what we're talking about here farmers dumping milk you know um in order to kind of keep the price of of milk uh, up um you know government storing cheese in warehouses uh in order to uh support the price of cheese rather than you know give it to to people who are hungry and so on there's lots of examples of that that's that's a, a perfect example of when exchange value kind of swamps the use value also it's just striking sometimes to look around and 
and realize how few people one knows who are engaged in actually, you know, creating a really, truly durable, useful good. It's not, of course, that, you know, all these other things are not important. Every economy has to have some aspects that are not purely, you know, we're not utilitarians, but still the fact that such a few people are making the actually useful things and so many people are making the um, non-useful, non-necessary uh, goods. There's there's a mismatch there. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and part of the problem, I mean, the, the most significant problem is just that goods have gotten um, unmoored from uh, production and from uh, people. And so uh, you've got this this kind of, I think you used the word detached uh, before, but we're, we're detached from, uh, from the process of production uh, such that people can be exploited um, for, for the making of things and, and human relationships are not, uh, are not to the forefront. It's, uh, it's, you, you have relationships with things. Things might be useful, things might be not useful, things might be beautiful, things might be ugly, but your relationship is with things and, and it's not uh, with, uh, with people. You know, there's a sense in which, like, I've just been reading uh, uh, Catholic anthropologist uh, Mary Douglas's work, the, the World of Stuff, and she makes the case that, you know, we communicate with each other through uh, the material world, uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. But oftentimes it's, it's, we've lost the sense that we're communicating with each other, and it's more like we're just communicating with things. Yeah, in your in your book, you highlight the fact that in a certain way, uh, modern humans are detached from one another, but also even in a sense from things. You know, we throw them away uh, very easily. We don't usually have a particular affection for a thing. Um, it's it's more of a attachment to the process of of um, obtaining a thing. And then we throw it away to obtain another thing. Uh, as, as spring rolled around here, I was walking in the neighborhood. And I noticed tons of dumpsters parked in front of individual houses as people tore out kitchens or emptied garages of things uh, to replace them with other things. And um, can, can you explain a little bit this, this odd way in which we, are, we tend to be detached? I've even heard some Catholics say, well, it's, at least it's a good thing, you know, we're, we're always moving around. We don't get attached to particular things or, or people because there's a, you know, the Christian uh, tradition values detachment. What is the difference between the kind of detachment we see in the modern world that leads to an overflowing landfill and the proper Christian sense of detachment from the material things of this world? Right. Yeah, that's a really, that's a good question. Um, so you do find in Augustine, you know, this tradition of our hearts are restless until they rest in God, right? Um, and so we are meant to have this kind of restless desire. Uh, this desire gets us out of the bed in the morning, and desire is kind of ultimately our motor back to God, um, this kind of restlessness. Uh, and that's a good thing. Um, and there's something very similar going on in a consumer society where we have this restlessness with material goods, um, but instead of moving on from one thing after another, uh, moving on to God, 
um, we just move on to the next thing, right? And there's a way in which our e economy and marketing uh, encourages us to do this. You know, there's constant updates to your phone. You can't be content with your phone. You have to, you have to buy the next uh, version of the phone that's coming down the line in another, you know, eight months or a year or something like that. You constantly have to be dissatisfied. The, um, back in the 1940s, there was an internal memo at the General Motors Corporation that talked about the, um, the, the creation of dissatisfaction, the organized creation of dissatisfaction, I think was the, um, was the phrase that was used to, to talk about changing car models every year. And you always want to keep people dissatisfied with what they have so they'll go out and buy the next thing. And so the difference between that, of course, and what Augustine was talking about is Augustine thought that eventually uh, our detachment from things would lead us to God and uh, our economy encourages us to just get the next thing, whatever the next thing uh, might be. So this, this restlessness of desire is just an engine for um, the, the production of more stuff. I read a really intriguing article which uh, posited that one of the reasons that uh, a selling point for modern goods is that they're maintenance-free. We want our things to be maintenance-free. And they posited that that is because the in the modern world, we don't actually love our things enough to give them maintenance. We don't respect them enough. I know I was thinking about uh, clear glass jars that are thrown away by the thousands every day. And I was thinking about, say, in the medieval world, uh, clear glass was very difficult or impossible to make. Like, it would have been considered like a clear glass uh, jar or cup would have been considered uh, a, a pretty remarkable thing, something that, you know, you could have been given as a valuable present. But now we don't respect them at all. We, we don't respect the things that God has given us. Um, and so we don't want to care for them. Uh, it's easier just to throw them. Of course, it's, it's worse when we throw away other human beings, as we see in abortion or the exploitation of workers. But there is a, a certain parallel in the, in the way in which we treat our possessions, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so there's a certain sense in which kind of craft traditions encourage people to slow down and become attached to things. Um, and, and that's not usually the way we, we tend to think about these matters. You, you know, we tend to think that detachment is the Christian thing uh, to do, but there's a certain sense in which, um, you know, learning a craft, learning to make something, uh, for example, uh, learning to repair your own car or, you know, repair a toaster rather than just throw it away and, and go get a, a new one. There's something about that that um, demands a kind of attentiveness to um, the material world that I think can cultivate certain kinds of uh, virtues. There's a, a nice book called Shop Classes Soul Craft uh, by Matthew Crawford came out a few years ago where he makes uh, precisely these uh, kinds of arguments um, and so uh, overcoming the detachment we have from production, it used to be that, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, almost everything that we had, we made ourselves or, or grew uh, or somebody that we knew made them. 
and now we make almost nothing. And that's a really profoundly uh, different way of relating to the material world. Uh, and, uh, and, and in some ways there, there's a significant loss there. Uh, in uh, the third and fourth chapters of your book, you talk about how the Eucharist, if properly understood, can upend our consumer orientation. Uh, how does the Eucharist contradict and replace consumeristic values? Yeah, I've been um, criticized for talking about the Eucharist as doing this or that, um, for having a too romanticized view of the Eucharist. And the, the criticisms are, are are right, right? I mean, the, the, the Eucharist doesn't do things automatically uh, and so on. And the Eucharist can be abused uh, and has been throughout history in many different ways, you know, in the Middle Ages to exclude Jews and so on. Um, so there's nothing kind of automatic uh, about it. What is automatic, I think, is the sense of ex opera operato, that Christ is going to show up in the Eucharist, even if we're all really bad people or, you know, inattentive, or even if we're, you know, go up to communion and we're thinking about, you know, who the Bears ought to draft uh, next year, if they ought to get a linebacker or a wide receiver, you know, um, uh, that that Christ is there uh, in the midst of all that brokenness anyway. Um, but I do want to uh, say that um, in what I think is the, the proper and full deep meaning of the Eucharist, that we do find uh, something which can prevent, which can uh, present a, a model of economic life, um, which can be life-giving. And the way uh, I talk about that is by talking about what Augustine says in, in the Confessions, where he says, you know, he hears the voice of God saying, uh, grow and feed on me, and uh, I will not become assimilated to your body like the food that your body eats, but you will become assimilated to my body. And so it's a kind of turning uh, the act of consumption inside out. So instead of kind of sucking things into the self, that in the Eucharist we become assimilated to a, a larger body um, in which, you know, when one suffers, all suffer together. When one rejoices, all rejoice together. And so it's this completely different way of imagining uh, consumption that I think can um, can provide a, a, a sort of model for uh, consumptive behaviors, I guess. Um, we all need to consume uh, to live, but there's this, uh, this sense in which we're no longer individuals that are seeking our own kind of pleasures and, and desires uh, and seeking to consume. You know, this idea of consuming something is kind of grabbing it taking it into the self and using it up, um, that that dynamic gets turns in, turned inside out and we are kind of assimilated into this broader body, um, which is ultimately a much more joyful kind of economy. When you were saying that, you know, obviously the Eucharist can be seen wrongly or used wrongly, uh, it reminded me of a discussion I had with someone where we were talking about how the Eucharist itself can unfortunately be seen in a consumptive manner, you know, like 
the parish can be seen as a sacrament stop where you go to get your sacrament and it's your sacrament, you know, like um, a very, a very un-Catholic, un-Christian view. Whereas, yeah, as you said in the book that the Eucharist, if, if properly understood, consumes us and draws us into the body of Christ, which means we're suddenly one with all these people, not just in the pews with us, but across the world. We're suddenly one with, say, the exploited workers uh, in sweatshops somewhere. And um, I really like the, the quote from your book where you said that if we receive the sacrament without being mindful of the poor, we may be eating and drinking damnation to ourselves. That um, if we try to have that symbol, which is supposed to be a symbol of unity, and if we just see it as something for ourselves, uh, then then it will fail to achieve that effect in us, that it will instead work our ruin. So that's 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about um, the the way that the poor are excluded from the, the Eucharistic uh, meals. So you have, you have both Eucharist and a kind of, you know, dinner uh, in, the, in the early church community. And um, once people go ahead with the dinner, they're excluding the poor, they're eating their own food and, and neglecting those who have none. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, in this you're eating, you could be eating and drinking your own damnation. And, um, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's the, the, the message there that it's not, the Eucharist is not something that can be just sort of aestheticized or romanticized and say, oh, look how, look how this is creating community, um, because it might not be, right? It's, it's a goad towards creating community, but that other part, the kind of ethical uh, counterpart of, of the Eucharist is just, uh, just as important. You know, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If someone has something, if, you, if you've got a problem with your neighbor, go and reconcile that first and then come back uh, and approach the altar. Uh, and um, we, um, uh, we just don't give that much, uh, much bandwidth anymore. It's amazing that when, until I'd read your book, I had never thought about the fact that the harshest a language about receiving communion unworthily that you can find in, in the New Testament and in the Christian tradition came in a context of talking about the breach of community and uh, disregarding the poorer members of the community. I mean, it, it seems obvious, but it's somehow easy to miss, I think. Yeah, I mean, the the, the general idea is that um, we, need to, we need to be holistic uh, in our lives and not kind of segregate things so that you can mess people over Monday through Friday and then go to church and receive the Eucharist on Sunday uh, and just not see the, the connection between those two things. And it, it, it's a it, part of the problem is that it is not seeing the connection between the different parts of the church either. You know, you've got conservatives who are big on Eucharistic piety and, um, uh, you know, adoration and so on. Um, and then you've got your social justice Catholics on the other side um, who are uh, concerned about the poor. And what you need is a figure like Dorothy Day who combines uh, those two things. You know, she, she couldn't be kept from daily mass. Um, but the importance of that was precisely in um, her encounters with Christ every day in homeless people. 
yeah, it can it can be easy to fall into kind of a magical understanding of of the faith where we try to use the symbols as if they they in and of themselves would change reality when reality if we don't like if we are trying to just manipulate symbols uh that's magic it's not uh christianity um i i, I think too in, in this context i'm thinking about saints like uh, john chrysostom and basil the great who emphasized that you know devotion to christ in the sacraments say giving um you know art for the church or whatever is actually a mockery of god if you're not also feeding the poor uh, uh basil says that if you know if you if Christ was standing naked outside and you were providing altar cloths and said, well, you know, like I'm clothing you by providing altar cloths. He would be, he would be indignant. And, and he said, he's naked in the poor. He's hungry in the poor. Uh, so uh, yeah, that this concern for connecting the two goes all the way back to the early church. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, you know, uh in, in, in chapter four, you say that Christian ethics blurs, um, you know, Adam Smith made a really hard distinction between justice and charity. And the Christian tradition, certainly in uh, Basil the Great and John Chrysostom there, uh, blurs that distinction by saying that feeding the poor is a matter of justice, whereas Adam Smith would say uh, it's a matter of charity. Not that it would, Adam Smith wouldn't say it's a bad thing, but he'd say that's it for individual charity and uh, Chrysostom and Basil would say, no, it's a matter of justice. Uh, what what explains that difference in those two uh, viewpoints? Well, as often happens, when you can separate two things like that, then you compartmentalize and you do the opposite of what we were just talking about, which is kind of bringing, you know, bringing the, the two um, aspects of the, the faith together. Um, and uh, in this sense, you, you know, I mean, I guess this brings us back to the beginning of our conversation about uh, economics and theology is that you can compartmentalize and you can think that what you do Monday through Friday at whatever corporation you work for um, is not directly connected with um, what you do on Sunday. So Sunday you might work at a soup kitchen, but Monday through Friday um, you're thinking that as long as I do justice, you know, to the law, as long as I'm, you know, doing something which is not illegal uh, or obviously immoral, then um, uh, I can, you know, I, I can separate these these two things. And it seems to me like we're being called to um, uh, do both of those uh, at the same time. Uh, Caritas and Veritate, the encyclical from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, I think, is quite good on on these matters as well. Kind of, or, or what Pope Francis says about evangelizing uh, the economy. You know that um, the we, we we live within these structures, these kind of public structures, in which what justice means is the protection of private property. Um, and what we need is a kind of economy in which the flourishing of all people can um, can actually uh, take place. And so um, that, I, I think, is the importance of kind of uh, bringing these two uh, ideas of, of justice and, and charity or love uh, together. As we uh, you know, come to the end of our time here, uh, for our listeners, what are some practical uh, things that they could 
work to change in their own economic lives. If they've, you know, read your book or listened to this, and I would we there's so much in your book, I would certainly encourage listeners to go and read it for themselves. We've only touched on a few of the topics in it, but if they're feeling moved to make a change in their lives, uh, what are some practical, concrete things that they could do to resist the consumer uh, mentality in themselves and really uh, look with justice and charity on their their fellow uh, beings and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, um, I think about this in terms of the detachment from uh, production from producers and from products. And um, I think we've been detached from production. We don't make things anymore. And one of the things that people can do is to make things. You know, I brew my own beer, uh, for example, but there's a lot of different things, you know, ways of participating in the production process that can can kind of jar us out of um, being thinking of ourselves simply as consumers. Um, I, there, I have a, a priest friend, uh, Father Andrew O'Connor, um, in New York City. He's a, 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 I think, Diocese of Brooklyn priest, but he has a whole theory that the parish ought to be a, a place of production and not just consumption. And so he has, um, they, they raise honey, um, they grow hops for the brewery down the street, they um, have started this whole clothing line called Goods of Conscience, where they get um, organic cloth from a cooperative of indigenous growers in Guatemala and make it into um, uh, clothing uh, in, uh, in his parish. Uh, so, some very, very beautiful things that he designs. Um, but the idea of making a parish into uh, a place of production and not just a place of consumption, I think, is is a, a sort of spiritual practice um, that that can help kind of overcome these things. So overcoming our our detachment from production, overcoming detachment from producers, I think, is really uh, important. Uh, the fair trade movement is one way of going about that, trying to learn where products come from, and um, treat products in such a way as um, uh, th that lead towards the flourishing of all the parties uh, involved. There, when I lived in the Twin Cities, there was a thing called the Whole Farm Co-op, um, a cooperative of organic farmers who uh, marketed through churches. And that was a way of kind of overcoming the anonymity of the market and thinking that the price is not just set settled by supply and demand, but the price is... Um, settled by uh, what's a just price for the people uh, involved. Uh, there are all kinds of different, I, I just heard from a guy who had read Being Consumed, um, but he had started, uh, helped start a uh, chain of coffee houses in the Nashville area called The Well, um, which are uh, precisely about creating community, uh, putting forth fair trade practices and fair labor practices. So kind of putting your, your uh, uh, Christianity into, into business, right? And so there's all different ways. I give a lot of examples in the book, actually, different ways of, you know, creating um, Christian-inspired uh, businesses that, that uh, try to, to kind of overcome some of these dichotomies. And then finally, our relationship with products, right? Um, one of the things uh, that we can do to kind of overcome this kind of alienation 
I think, is um, detaching ourselves as much as we can from uh, the world of marketing and advertising that we have swimming around in our heads uh, so much and think, uh, think about use value and not just uh, exchange value, but also kind of uh, overcome this, this constant, get off the treadmill of constantly looking for something, uh, something new and, um, and, and cultivating a certain kind of contentment with the, the products that we have. Um, so it, it, there's lots of different uh, examples that I give in the book of kind of uh, concrete things that people are doing. Uh, and there's many, many more out there, people trying to kind of create a, a, a sane economy. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill, for giving those suggestions. And thanks for all the thoughts you shared. Thanks for your time with us today. I really appreciate having you on this show. Thank you, Malcolm. Keep up the good work. Thanks. And uh, for the listeners, uh, watch for our next episode in two weeks' time. <laughs>